Hello and welcome to the Horrible Things Podcast. This is a true crime and disaster podcast where we talk about all things horrible, as is implied by the title of this podcast. My name is Emma Sexton. I am your host, and today I am joined by Stephen Wright. And Kaya Wright. Look at that. We have both of you guys on here. I'm so happy. I was talking to some people after the episode that Stephen was on. And they were like, we need we need to see who Steven's wife is because he talked about her so much on the podcast when he was on. And I was like, you know what? That That is really not a bad idea. And you still won't see her. Well, yeah, you we still won't her. see her. Yeah. But now you'll at least get a, a sense of who she is. Yeah. So um, just before we start, I kind of wanted to ask you, Kaya, a question we ask everyone who's it's their first time on the show. But um, what is your like interest level or knowledge level when it comes to things true crime related like are you super into it is this kind of the first thing you've done this true crime related uh do you listen to podcasts do you watch documentaries like where is where are you with true crime I feel like I'm definitely interested in it and then so it's just finding a balance between like what's convenient to watch so I don't necessarily you know listen to a lot of podcasts but I am really interested in crime in general and the psychological aspect to it and understanding what leads people to do that. So, yeah, I think I'm really interested in that. You know, I grew up with my mom watching, you know, Dateline and all of those kind of shows. So, yeah. And uh, if you don't mind, would you be able to tell everyone like what you are studying in school and what kind of you want your career path to be after school? Yeah, yeah. So I am getting my master's in counseling to become a marriage and family therapist um, so I'll be graduating in May. So I'm not yet graduated, but um, in that I'm primarily working with children and adolescents um, in different populations. So I know my ultimate goal is to work in a hospital setting with kids with chronic illnesses and their families. Um, but yeah, just working with uh, children and adolescents and I don't know, assisting them. So that's amazing. That's super awesome. Okay, so when you talk about wanting to work with children with chronic illnesses, would that be like kids that have terminal illnesses and are in hospitals? I didn't even know that there was therapy provided for kids who had chronic illness or anything like that. Well, I think that's the gap. So I don't think that the focus is on giving those children therapy. Um, But yeah, kids with chronic illnesses that could be terminal and some that aren't. So kids that are away from their peers and in a hospital setting. So during their social development they're not hitting those milestones because they're not with their peers. Yeah. So coming alongside them in that process, because a lot of the research and a lot of the, you know, poly- or the practice implications are really surrounded around the, the parents and the family, the siblings, um, okay. and not as much about the actual child dealing with, you know, being different at such a young age. That's pretty crazy. I just never thought about that, but like, when you say it, it makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And like, I've definitely had friends who have dealt with things, even like diabetes and things like that, where mm-hmm. they can just, I could definitely see how having to talk about your life being in danger and things like that at such a young age could definitely like have a big impact on you. Mm-hmm. I just never really thought about that before. Yeah, That's yeah. super interesting. Yeah. Just like the way that they process and I don't know, feel different and not, yeah. not being able to talk to, you know, their same age peers about that. So then even creating like group therapy with kids that have similar conditions so that they can come together and feel understood. This is kind of just like an off topic question, but what are your thoughts about um, like the whole genre of like illness books and movies? Like what what do you mean exactly? Like things like the fault in our stars or five feet apart or books and things that are like centered around kids with terminal illnesses. Have you ever like read any of that stuff or is it just kind of like, it's not really a th- I don't know if I've I don't know if I've really I'm trying to think if I have seen you know like I've seen like a what's that one with a girl that had cancer it came out like there's like, there's more than one of those I oh think. yeah that's true <laughs> that's true um <laughs> I don't think I've actually read a lot about it yeah yeah it's it's a very interesting like genre at least to me because it's a it's kind of a weird thing that all these books about I guess it's just a thing that's kind of 
kids like to read about people that have like a timer on their life mm-hmm. yeah. because then it's like, what would you do if yeah. you had a timer on your life? You know, yeah. Here's, yeah. What's so, cra- here's what's crazy about that. This is my own thoughts. When you're 17, you don't know your life is going to end. You don't get that. When you're 25 and your brain starts developing and it's fully developed, you realize, oh my gosh, I could die. I have no interest in seeing those movies now <laughs> Yeah, at all. I'm like, I don't want to think about that. I already do. I already drive on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> I think about dying all the time when I do that. Yeah, I guess that is kind of true. Like, I'm never actively worried that I'm going to die unless I'm, like, I unless it's like a, you know, a dire circumstance or I'm like walking. There's a bear. Yeah, there's a bear. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. But I never really think about that too much. I guess that is probably why it's such a, like they say, it's a young adult genre, even though it yeah. is like a very big topic. It's the books that are more popular with people in old, like older age groups are more like, nonfiction books and things like that mm-hmm. not about dying yeah. Yeah. but i don't know but more adults listen to true crime so mm. yeah what do you what yeah what do you do with that i think that just foiled my whole hypothesis yeah because on this podcast the main age group is 18 to 18 to 25 and then the second biggest is like 26 to 34 mm. which mm. is kind of interesting mm-hmm. but yeah yeah I think personal experiences could like point someone that was younger to that direction, you know, of like what they're interested in. Yeah, for sure. Maybe it's like the kids that were reading illness books when they were younger are now the people that <laughs> listen <laughs> to true crime and mm-hmm. watch true crime stuff. The illness heads of the- <laughs> yesteryear <laughs> are now true crime heads. I true feel like true crime, junkies. true crime is like the bee's knees right now. It really is. It somehow took like a giant upturn in the past like two years. Same with podcasting. I feel like true crime and podcasting almost go hand in hand. Like mm-hmm. podcasts have always been popular, but true crime podcasts are what made them blow up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like everyone knows about my favorite murder and all those podcasts because yeah. that really like started the whole thing. It's very interesting. I like this one better. <laughs> uh Ladies, if you're listening, <laughs> but um, yeah, it is super weird how true crime is just like blown up in the past two years. Yeah, yeah. With Netflix and like the availability of just making your own documentaries. Yeah, and it's also like especially weird because I feel like the people that I've found the most interested in it, like most of the people I know that listen to true crime things, are from church. Yeah, which is like kind <laughs> of not what you would expect. Because they're in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> the people. I like. The, yeah, the That's victims. I, I'm like, Stephen, what are you? <laughs> yeah, the, it's every time I'm like, oh, yeah, my favorite murder would be like Mandy or like. Um, yeah, my mom loves this. Yeah. Or Mrs. Mitchell. So, Mrs. Like, Mitchell. Yes. And the walkers. <laughs> yeah. 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 So a lot of people from church. I have a hypothesis. I think this is getting dark, but it's like a true crime murder podcast. So how bad could it get? It's implied. <laughs> it's implied. That's funny. Uh, I wonder if, if we have we have so much death happening in our media. We talk about mass shootings. There's wars. There's bombings. I think a lot of these people become nameless. Like these people are just collateral damage um, from whatever it is across across the world. There's so much. There's just like wars, right? It's, that's just kind of the thing right now is wars. And we see that so much. And these victims become nameless. I wonder if... This true crime podcast, when we get specific and we funnel that, that kind of engagement from there's so much chaos and we dive into one person, we know their name, we know their history, we know that they had three kids and the dog's name was Lucky. Like, I wonder if that in some way fills this kind of void that is within our psyche of there's so much chaotic. I can't, my brain literally was never designed to grasp this. Yeah. And maybe we we find some sort of healing in at least knowing these people. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. It's like that's kind of what I don't like about when some of the cases like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, when those cases like blow up and then it becomes not at all about the victims. Like that's a lot of the problems I've had with the recent media about Ted Bundy is it's like know their names, like know their faces. If you're going to be obsessed with watching all that content and loving all that content, like it's important to realize that these are real people. Like it's not, it's not just entertainment, you Mm -hmm. know? They're more than a yearbook photo. Yeah. That's what you see is the yearbook photo, the senior picture. And that's Mm -hmm. it. 
But gosh, think about senior year. That's such a blip. Yeah. My senior photo says nothing about me. My senior quote says a lot about me, but. <laughs> what was your senior quote? Just watched Norbit. All my Norbit heads. My friends. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Brayden, Mikey, Cody, Jacob, Nick. We've been homies since 08. And they're going to be so stoked that I'm talking about them right now. <laughs> but we just, our friend Cody, man, he just loved Norbit for some reason. And it became a thing. And now it's Jagger's thing. So yeah, my senior quote, I'm pretty sure it was just watch Norbit or something about Norbit. <laughs> they took away senior quotes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. <laughs> for my year, they took them away. They're all gone. It's so sad because they had to submit them. But then apparently people were just submitting stupid stuff. So they all got taken away. Uh, what's worse dang. I think an inspirational quote of like you miss 100% of the shots you don't take is more disrespectful to the world than saying something stupid like I poop my pants at school no but it was like bad stuff oh okay uh, people were quoting Hitler oh and I'm oh like, my <laughs> gosh you guys are that's not even funny <laughs> no it's so stupid that was the thing it's like no one was laughing people were just like why are you you ruined it for all of us I want no, no, okay. This is this is the issue I have. You can chime in here, Kaya. <laughs> Dude, if you're quoting Hitler on your senior photo, I don't think people should have things following them around forever. Luckily, the people that we talk about in this podcast have this one event follow them <laughs> for forever and ever. But uh, I feel like, hey, yeah, make your quote. And then when you're 20... Go back, crack open your yearbook. What did I write? Oh, yeah. Or when your, I was kids, that guy. your kids want to see what your yearbook <laughs> quote was. Wow. You have be, to explain. Yeah. <laughs> Mine was going to be to whoever rear-ended my car in the parking lot, I forgive you. <laughs> but they took it away. That's funny. Uh, yeah, it's pretty sad. But what can you do? I mean, I guess really I understand not wanting Hitler in the yearbook. Yeah. So That's I'm fair. not too mad about it. But... uh Steven, I wanted to ask you, because you're actually the one who brought this case to my attention, the case that I we're going to be talking about today. Mm -hmm. How did you find out about it? About the case? Yeah. <laughs> Noonie, my aunt, Lorna. I live in Laguna Beach. I was in first grade. She worked, I think, in Garden Grove, but she would pick me up every day from school. And during the time when she did this, the Scott Peterson case was on KFI AM radio. And I was just... Oh, like the rest of the nation, even the 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 five to to seven year old age range was exposed to this case that took over the world. So I mentioned it here. Kyle listened to the podcast. She's an awesome wife. She supports <laughs> me and everything. And then we were on Hulu, and I just thought Scott Peterson was just guilty. Was the definition of the word guilty? Because that's what we heard, right? Well, I don't even remember hearing anything. I remember being like, I don't remember. And I asked my brother. He remembered hearing about it. My parents remembered about yeah. it. So then once we saw it in Hulu, I was like, wait, we should watch this. I think Mention Kai, this. I think Kai's too good of a person to uh, have let that influence her. She's just a free spirit. <laughs> I, I think I was just too inattentive. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to throw you a bone here, but you're like, I was just a goofy little. I was little, just in my own I was head. <laughs> she was like the definition of a child. Like I know her now. Yes. And I can see, I just, sometimes I think about her as a kid and I just love that kid. I don't know her, never met her, but the little kid Kai is the bomb. Um, <laughs> I also didn't have TV until I was like in third grade. Yeah. She's a little hippie. So look at that. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you wouldn't have known this if you didn't have TV. Like the first parents, iPod came you. out when I was in third grade. Shut up. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> We're not that much older. Ago. How old are you? I'm 18. Okay. I'm 24, turning 25 this year. Yeah. So for third grade, so I must have been like older than third grade. I can't do the math there. Yeah. It's kind of weird because like three years younger than me are the kids that had iPhones in fifth grade. But like my yeah. year is still kind of like I had a flip phone, mm. you know, like. Amen. Yeah. Those slide up phones with like the keyboards that mm -hmm. went sideways. That was like. Sidekick. That was the sidekick. height of luxury right yeah. there. And Paris Hilton had the sidekick. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. That was huge. The Blackberry. The Blackberry. Blackberry Messenger. Okay. RIP. <laughs> Rip, we miss you, Blackberry. Um, anyways, yeah, so then we watched this on Hulu because... Uh, Which one did you watch? The Murder of Lacey Peterson. The Murder of Lacey Peterson. 
Is it pretty interesting? Pretty original. Is it name. like an American mystery, something like that? A little bit. I think it, it is that what the title was. No, I think the title was the murder of. I think it, yeah. Person. I don't. I can't I remember. Said it, I said it because I also times. watched one on Hulu. I'm wondering oh, if we watched the same one. You watched that? I Dang. watched one. There's two. Dang. Maybe we watched a different. Does the private investigator is he in that one no. with the glasses? No, we watched different ones. See, you watched. I think you watched the Scott hit piece, and we watched the Nancy Grace hit piece. Huh. Was Nancy Grace in it? No. Now I'm you interested know. to hear. I know now. I, I didn't. We got to watch both now. One. Yeah, there's this one. The one that I looked up. Um, I like read it, and then I read the stuff on Murderpedia, which if you haven't heard of it, Murderpedia. It's great. great. It's like Wikipedia, except they compile all of the articles on a case and then just like put them in one spot so you can read them all mm-hmm. <laughs> without having to search through a ton of stuff. But this case is plentiful in media coverage mm-hmm. so it's good yeah but yeah i'm excited to to get into it because i'd never heard of this case before but when i was watching the documentary i was like oh wow this is a big deal like this was a big deal mm-hmm. it's i would say it's like not quite as prominent as the oj case but it's like certainly something in california mm-hmm. like seems like a lot of people knew about it when i asked my parents about it they both knew about it so mm-hmm. my uh, friend landon what's up landon <laughs> he's from Midcal, where Kaya's from, uh, and he said because it was in Modesto, yeah, and they used to, I guess, go by the house oh, that really? they lived in. Yeah, yeah they like talked about weird. it. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't he, live that far from there. No, she was from Hollister. This case, I'm very excited to go through it. So I say we just get right into it. We got a lot of yeah. stuff to cover here, so let's get right into it. So um, the very beginning of this case is kind of crazy timing because it starts on Christmas Eve. Mm. So uh, Christmas Eve of 2002. So Lacey Peterson is reported missing by her stepfather. Um, her stepfather had gotten a call from Scott Peterson that day that, and he was like, hey, have you seen Lacey? And then, because he thought that Lacey had gone to the stepfather's house because they were going to have dinner there. And the stepfather was like, no, I, I haven't seen her all day. And then Scott was like, oh, well, I haven't seen her all day either. And she was a, had a prior commitment to be at his house. So then they thought, oh, something must be wrong. So that was the call where she was originally reported missing. And when they reported her missing, it became a big deal pretty immediately because she was eight months pregnant at the time that she was reported missing. And it was at a downtime in media coverage. Mm-hmm. There was no sports to talk about Iraq. 9-11, that was like a year prior. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And this is 03, right? 03? Uh, 02. 02, yeah. But about to be 03. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we had gone to war yet. It is kind of hair. Like the story of what happened, though, is kind of crazy because they talk about how Scott Peterson um, said that like he got home and then their, like, their dog was outside, mm-hmm. but Lacey wasn't there. After she'd gone to take the dog for a walk in the park, like it, I just imagine that scene being kind of creepy. Just the a dog without an owner, like where did she go? Just looks like she completely disappeared. One of the neighbors actually found the dog first with its leash still on, and that was Mm -hmm. around ten ten a.m. ish. Ten fourteen. Ten fourteen a.m. Yeah, it was like ten eighteen or seventeen. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> So the cops go into that's true. That's the truth right there. 10, because 18, it might have been ten forty five that they found the dog, which would have validated the yeah. eyewitness accounts accounts we'll of get, her. We'll, we'll let her get. I know. There. I'm so sorry. We're hijacking this. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm, I'm happy that you like that you know about the case. That's good. Okay, so she's eight months pregnant, missing. So the cops are like, okay, we should probably get over there right away. So Scott says that she left at around 9.30 a.m. that morning. So when the cops say, hey, can we look around the house? Scott says, yeah, sure. And so they walk in and her keys are still there. Her car is still in the driveway. None of her stuff seems to be gone. So it doesn't look like she packed up and left of her own accord. But the only thing they notice is that everything is perfect in the room, except they notice there looks like there's a mark where someone was sitting at the end of the bed, at the end of Scott and Lacey's bed. And other than that, everything just looks completely normal. Uh, And after they scan everything, they check the cars, everything is completely empty. And Scott is, after that, brought in by the police department and he's questioned. At first, it's kind of like they're just asking him 
pretty basic questions like where were you where was she what time did she leave do you remember this and that and then kind of by the end I watched the they have footage of the questioning so I watched it and it's kind of interesting how by the end of it it almost turns into like a questioning of sorts yeah like they're they're asking him questions like you're telling me that you did not see Lacey Peterson after this time yeah that time um and just to give a little background before we get into like some more of the actual events of this case I just want to talk about their relationship kind of before all of this happened So Lacey is described by her friends as being like a really upbeat person, full of energy. She was very extroverted. She wanted to be around people and she wanted to just have fun and have a good time with people, her friends and Scott Peterson. So she went to Cal Poly Slow, which is kind of close to here, in 1993. And that's when she met Scott. He was actually a waiter at a restaurant that she went to. That's where they first met And her friend said that it was love at first sight. A lot of people said that Scott and Lacey kind of had the same fairy tale future in mind. Like they both wanted to just go and buy a house and make good money and have kids and get married and be together. Kind of they wanted a very nuclear family, Mm -hmm. all that. After two years of knowing each other, they got married. And after they got married, they moved to Modesto. They so live there. I have a question. Yes. They were they in, both in San Diego. Do you know? Um, I believe so. Okay. Yes. And then they moved back together to because Lacey wanted to be closer to her family. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, especially because they both wanted to have kids. Yeah. So they thought it would be better to move back yeah. toward family. So they got married after two years. Uh, Lacey. Her friend said that she was so excited to get married. She completely, like, coordinated everything for the wedding. She was very, like, person in charge of all that was going on with the wedding. And uh, after they moved back to Modesto, she got pregnant fairly quickly. And she was so excited to have a baby. A lot of her friends recall her calling them, like, the day she found out and being so excited and happy to have a baby. And they talk about how it was really weird that she went missing at this time because everything seemed to be going so well with her and Scott. Like they were going to have a kid. They were married. It was almost Christmas. Things were going fine with her family. So people were really confused, especially her friends and family. And something interesting is that even her family would in the beginning talk about how much they loved Scott Peterson and how he was the perfect guy for her. And Mm -hmm. like they couldn't picture anything going wrong with them because it was just like, love at first sight like everyone talked about so that's some background on them I find it kind of very interesting I think that's honestly part of the reason why we were talking about the media really caught on to this case is because it's such Lacey is the girl next door like it's all Mm -hmm. very like I said it's all very like a nuclear family two people that met during college moved back toward their family got married have kids like It's all very normal and then something completely like the most awful thing you can imagine happens. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of the reason. It's like a lot of people have followed this path. So what was different? What weren't other people seeing? I I feel like also, I don't know if you can add to this, Kaya, but I feel like 2002 Survivor was huge. Was Big Brother out then? You had the real world. You had all these reality TV shows. And I think maybe even the OJ trial was a precursor to this, but that was a reality show. That was reality. And that was the beginning of the reality show craze. And you're following this person and these are real life events and these things really happened. Yeah. She really died. We don't know what really happened for certain. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know either way. But I think too, what makes this even more interesting is the fact that like this became more than a trial and I feel like it became just this media frenzy like Scott Peterson was the villain that you hated yeah Mm -hmm. when you watch a reality show there's always the good person there's always the villain these events are supposedly real Mm -hmm. we watched um, what did we watch five minutes of with your mom and dad about the ocean is it Bachelor in Paradise I think so. <laughs> what did the chick say to the guy? Oh, she said, uh, oh, my love for you is so deep. Even the ocean would be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> you 
You know what's interesting about what you're saying is like, I didn't let my mom finish her opinion like on the case because I w- was in the middle of like watching the documentary and I didn't want to like hear her opinion until after. But um, when I told her that we were watching the show, I just remember her being like, oh, like you're watching that. Like, oh my gosh. And she was just such a beautiful girl. And it's it's funny that you're talking about like this portrayal of like this perfect person, like what could go wrong. Yeah, That was interesting. I always want to ask her what, her opinion is today because she probably hasn't watched or like looked into more information yeah and it's that is something kind of interesting too is like you'll you see in so many of the like news articles and things that came out back then it's like a giant picture of Lacey Mm -hmm. or like a giant picture of Lacey and Scott and it it is there is something to be said about people she was like very young and very beautiful and that is attractive to people when they look into a murder case because it's like so much youth and beauty just like taken away out mm-hmm. of the world it kind of makes people care more almost mm-hmm. which is almost a little disturbing if you think about it well we have we have the uh, exonerated five the central park five movie who are now the exonerated five is about those oh, five right that yeah, there's a I've woman who this. got raped in in uh in new york in a park and you know, it just became this thing where these five black kids were really easy, you know, to be villainized. Yeah. And there was, it was a public trial. And you have a jury who is, you know, for all intents and purposes, pretty much outed to the public. And if you if you exonerate these five kids, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they happen to be black... If you're the jury, you're like, well, I'm not sure. Let's make this happen. Let's just do it so that we found somebody. Yeah. Because it's a horrific thing. Because people want justice. Yeah, we want justice. And when when you get mad, what happens to your brain? Like, what do you, what, what? I don't know. You can't actually think through decisions using, I don't know, like your actual problem solving skills, thinking clearly. You'd think about like when you get in a fight with someone and you say things and then after you're like, why did I say that? Like your brain just shuts down and can't actually like look at situations objectively. So then when you hear about what he had done in his past, we're talking about Scott Peterson that you're going to get to, you get frustrated. Yeah. Does that influence the way you think about things? I don't know. And I don't know enough about this case. I watched a freaking Annie documentary. I don't know crap. <laughs> I don't know crap. But I think with this, I, I don't know if I came in with, an, with a frustration. I did come in with a frustration about the way that this was handled. Um, but I don't know. I just, I, I think it's, it's kind of fascinating to see how, how easy it is to give a guilty or non-guilty person an unfair trial. Yeah, no, for sure. So going back to where we left off in the case, they, Scott, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no, I love it. The tangents are what makes it fun, makes it good. Yeah. Um, so Scott's brought in, he's questioned by the police and what he tells them basically about his morning. Cause they're like, where were you? What were you doing? Obviously basic questions. <laughs> um, and so he says, I, um, I left the house. Uh, I left the house early in the morning, a little bit after, um, Lacey, he was still in bed when Lacey left. So he says, I left the house. I sent a few emails once I got to, um, my warehouse where I keep my boat. Um, so I sent a few emails and then I got in my boat and I went fishing. And then he said that he called Lacey when he left the marina. Uh, and then the police are like, can we test your hands for gunshot residue? Just to make sure, just to be like extra, extra safe. He's like, sure, no problem. They ask him if he'll take a polygraph. He says, sure, no problem. Um, and when they're testing his hands for gunshot residue, something that one of the lead detectives noticed was that he had a cut on his hand and that was just like, it looks like a fresh cut. So he was just taking note of that as, and that's actually something that they will use later. So keep that in the back of your brain. Um, and then while they're kind of in the middle of this, the police find out that there was a burglary across the street from where Lacey and Scott lived, uh, in the time frame where they think that Lacey could have been kidnapped So every person then on parole for violent crimes from Modesto is located and they all have to give their alibis to the police. Every single person who's on parole for a violent crime, which is kind of crazy. I mean, that just shows you how desperate they were to figure out where she was like 
And they bring up over and over again the fact that she was eight months pregnant was a huge factor in that because they were like, we need to get her back. Because, I mean, she could theoretically, you know, go into labor at any time. And they didn't want that to happen if she was in a bad situation. So um, that day also they're able to find that one neighbor saw three men um, standing in the back of a white van like near the neighbor's house who got broken into and that was around 11:40 like the night before. Mm-hmm. So they have one person who witnessed part of the robbery or people they think could have been involved in the robbery, but that's pretty much all the information they have at this time. So at this point in the case, it's not really going towards Scott or toward anyone else. They're actually looking more at the robbery, thinking that Maybe Lacey Peterson witnessed something and was kidnapped or hurt because of what she witnessed. If there was a burglary across the street from from where she was and could have been theoretically in the same time frame. So that's um, what they're looking at more so this time. And then soon after she's reported missing and the police start investigating, uh, her parents address the public. Her father breaks down on TV. It's like a very emotional interview. And if you've seen parts of it, I mean, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like, he yeah. breaks down crying, just saying, like, bring Lacey back, please. Right. And it's it's super sad. Um, so the police bring a dog to Lacey's, Lacey and Scott's house. And um, they give it her scent. And they're like, okay, go. <laughs> show, show us where she went. But instead of walking toward the park, it actually goes the other direction, away from La Loma Park, which is where she was supposed to be walking the dog. So then after that, the police start to theorize that maybe Lacey was kidnapped in front of their house or near the house, that she never actually made it to the park, mm. that maybe the dog, her dog, was just left right outside the house from from the get-go. So they, they start to theorize that she's been kidnapped, basically, at this point. She hasn't run away or anything like that. So they set up a tip line and hundreds of people send in false tips. So the police are basically running down like every single lead that people are sending in. But it's really like going nowhere because a lot of it is just like fake lacy sightings. But no, none of them actually pan out. So it's kind of just distracting the the police. No, this is they set up a tip line for the entire Modesto area. Like if you've seen... Uh, and they released it to the public. So, like, if yeah. you've seen Lacey Peterson, if you have any information, call this number and a police officer will be connected with you. So, they have, like, hundreds of tips and people are just scattered yeah. trying to chase down any possible lead, even, if, like, no matter how far-fetched it was. So, it kind of wasn't a very strong investigation at the very beginning, for sure. Yeah. What, what we saw, it seemed... This is so interesting because, yeah, it's like there's parts of what you're saying that it's like we didn't really... Yeah. Hear about or we it was presented in different ways. Yeah. Even like the dog. Yeah. So they use I think they use a dog multiple times. And what they, do they, they say? They talked about the dog at the uh, marina, which yeah. you might get to. I'm not sure. Maybe. <laughs> so like the dog was tested. So they and like seventy five percent of the time it didn't it get like the false, thing right. Yeah. yeah, I didn't hear any read anything about that. It's interesting how wow. we're talking about media and mass media <laughs> and generating narratives. Yeah. And look at, we have been sucked into <laughs> a media narrative. This should be interesting. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm so excited about yeah. this because mm-hmm. I, you told me from the beginning, you're like, I think he's innocent. And then I watched this documentary no, and like- I don't think he, I don't know if he's innocent. Right. My- that's kind of where I'm at too. Like I'll talk about that more near the end, but that's where I'm at. Right. After mm-hmm. I finished, I just kind of like sat there and I was like, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and then <laughs> no, I kept going back and forth about it and I still don't know. And yeah. usually I, I know, like, yeah, I feel like pretty. I know if I think someone's guilty or if they're not, but I, in this case, it's so weird. And there's so many like little things where you're like, that could be really significant or it could be completely far-fetched and not involved yeah. whatsoever. But it's yeah. like, I mean, we'll talk about it link- later, but the anchor thing and all. Yeah. Yeah. Like it could be really relevant. It could be completely far-fetched. Like I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think my frustration with the whole thing is really probably with Nancy Grace. <laughs> I don't even know who that yeah. is. Nancy Grace. She was not mentioned once in anything I read or watched. Hmm. Well, this is so wow. interesting. <laughs> Nancy Grace is a HLN. She was on Larry King a lot. I know. I've heard the name. So she's like a prosecutor turned 
Um, is she blonde? Yeah. Yeah. Short big, bob. Big blonde hair. Nancy Grace. Yep. Scott okay. Peterson is guilty. <laughs> I did see a thing with her. I know. I, I know. In my yeah. bones. Oh, we heard so much. Oh I my know gosh, in my soul <laughs> that he is guilty. Yeah, but also the other guy, Mark Garagos, he wasn't also the sharpest tool in the shed when it came to defense either. And I and he's also kind of like known for defending. That's the other he thing. He defends like, sketchy people. He defended yeah. Michael Jackson and the yeah. pedophile charges. Yeah. Yeah. He defended like he's he's not. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> it's so interesting. Okay, but we'll if your get kids if bit, your yeah. kids but up I'm for really the death excited. penalty, and he said he's like, I'll do it for a mill. If your kids up for a death penalty, and it's like, do I choose this guy who represents sketchy people? In, but he usually won. Yeah, that usually wins in an attempt to save my child. I don't know, man. I'd probably take the slimy dude. I don't know though because I don't really. Attorney. I mean, that whole thing about the parents of a person put up for death penalty, like pleading to the public and to the media. To me, I'm kind of just like meh about it. To, to be honest, even watching this, because I mean, I'll feel emotional for any parent. I felt emotional when I watched Ted Bundy's mom plead that he wouldn't get the death penalty. It doesn't mean that I don't think he deserved it, but it it's like you can't always control. I mean, that's awful when you think about being a parent. So. I don't it's know kind of, anything. I don't know how that helps with sentencing. I think it's more of like that maybe one juror will like feel bad, like has kids yeah. or will feel bad enough that they'll give their vote so that you get either. A, I mean, that usually happens only during the sentencing. Yeah. So it's like, give him a lighter sentence, please. Like, yeah, my kid. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that helps or hurts you because it's like either way. Don't murder my kid. Don't give my kid the death (laughs) penalty or give this guy the death penalty. I think I'm such an emotional person and I live off emotion. And as someone who does music, like emotion is everything really in music Mm -hmm. to me at least. And even for Kaya, like talking to people, empathy, being a counselor. I think that goes into it. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. You have to be an empathetic person. So I, so I makes think it complicated though. It makes it complicated. Yeah, like having you have to be a professional, but you have to be empathetic at the same time. Yeah. So you like just separate your own feelings from I don't know the facts in front of you. Yeah. And isn't it a thing also that a lot of therapists also have problems with like mental illness and things like that, where it's like being in that situation where you're hearing like horrible things all day long, all the time, can be really like mentally taxing. Yeah. Yeah, I know uh, a lot of people that before I went into the program, like my mom has colleagues that went through the program and whatnot, and they always say that like you have to be able to separate your work and home life or else it's just not sustainable. So it's like definitely like you have to put the work in to be able to separate that so that you don't take that home every day because it is hard, you know, listening to that all day. But as, as long as you build the skills, but some people it's just, it's just. I don't know, not there to be able to separate the two, but needed. Yeah. I wonder if, I think adversity has a unifying characteristic to it. I wonder if the way that you cope with talking to people who are going through difficult things is to find like the unifying empathy in it instead of like focusing on how bad it is. Mm -hmm. You just say, hey, I'm walking, I'm pacing alongside someone who's going through something difficult. Yeah, I mean, that's how I deal with it. I'm seeing growth. Yeah, exactly. I say that, you know, at least I'm there and giving them the full attention and doing what I can. So if that's what I get to do for an hour, then I get to give them their full attention and empathize and just listen to them. So I try to focus on like what I can do rather than what I can't, you know. For sure. So with the death penalty, I feel like, emotions though you can't disassociate completely sometimes i wonder if allowing someone to give an emotional testimony or an emotional response and i think it's okay to give them an emotional response of course in a courtroom i think that that's probably part of the grieving wouldn't you say in some way shape or form i'm all for that i mean look at the brock turner case chanel miller's um response where she spoke out that's like one of the yeah. most, I think, what, 11 million people read it. Like, yeah. and it, it really influenced a lot of people. Like, that's, I think that's fine. That's great. Yeah. But, yeah, it is. But prior a, it's, to it's sentencing, a weird, I don't know. 
I mean, it was before he even got convicted that yeah. she spoke. So I, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's kind of a, it is a weird line. The justice system is weird. And especially because, I mean, in this case, like where we left off is right where the media starts to get involved. And yeah. that's kind of where it all yeah. <laughs> spirals into like this crazy Dude. case. That's why this Dude. case is so crazy is because the media gets super, super involved. Reporters are showing up to the Peterson's house and reporters are like getting in his face and they're talking about how he's like unwilling to talk to any reporters. And a lot of the media actually s- took this as okay, this could possibly mean this guy's guilty because usually when the husband or family member of a missing person gets the opportunity to talk on TV, they take it because they want to raise awareness for the fact that this person is missing. Yeah. But uh, reporters just said Scott Peterson like won't talk to any of us. He won't want to. He doesn't want to appear on camera. Nothing like that. So. Scott also later a little bit later um, when he's brought back into the police station he goes back on his word and doesn't take a polygraph um, yeah. not that polygraphs work anyway yeah. <laughs> they don't it's I, it was just more of an the media got a hold of Scott Peterson at first that first day on you know on Christmas basically said yeah. I will take a polygraph and then when they ask him a few days later he says no I don't his lawyers advise him not to take a polygraph yeah which is very strange and now the police are starting to get suspicious of scott because of that but isn't that because polygraphs are like highly ineffective anyways yeah they are but just saying that you're willing to take one is kind of like a are you willing to get hooked up to the truth machine like if you say no it gives off the impression that you're guilty It's, it's weird so then the police they ask the public to come forward if they saw they say okay anyone that found that saw scott's truck or boat the morning that Lacey Peterson went missing, come forward, send us a message, call the police, let us know, because uh, we want to confirm his alibi. But by saying, by putting it out there, like, did you see Scott's truck? Mm-hmm. Did you see Scott's boat? It kind of alerts the public and the media that, hey, we're looking at this guy as like, a he could be a prime suspect. Yeah. And interestingly enough, um, Scott's mother and Lacey's entire family come to his defense and uh, her family said that they, quote, have always been a team, which is kind of crazy because this is at the very beginning and that will completely change as this progresses. Yeah. Uh, So getting to the part of the case that I pretty much you guys definitely know what I'm going to be talking about. (laughs) But um, a month later, so January 24th, 2003, Amber Frey, who is a massage, Frey, not Frey. Amber Fry, she's a massage therapist. She comes forward after seeing on the news uh, pictures of Scott and Lacey together and seeing that there is a woman who's eight months pregnant missing. And by this time, she would be nine months pregnant. Her baby, she's supposed to have her baby anytime. Uh, and so Amber Fry actually met Scott Peterson on a blind date. And she said that her friend set the two of them up and that instantly there was an attraction between the two of them. And she was a single mom. And she was very excited about the fact that he seemed okay with that. Like he didn't, he didn't ever say anything against her having kids or anything like that. So they went on dates all the time. They were, they were basically dating and her Mm. daughter even met Scott Peterson and like the families were very close and her daughter really liked him. So December 29th was actually when Amber found out that he was married to a missing pregnant woman that she had never heard about before. And, um, Pretty soon after that is when, I mean, less than a month after that, she calls in, tells the police and things like that. So um, she, when she calls into the police, she actually gets a receptionist, but um, she's trying to tell this person like what, what's going on. And it happens that the lead detective on the case walks by as she's telling this person about what's happening. And he's like, give me the phone right now. And she tells this detective everything about what happened in the relationship and he goes to her house to see what's going on. She has pictures of her and Scott together going on dates, pictures of them at a Christmas party. Like, they're clearly dating, clearly together. And um, December 9th, it, Amber actually testified to this, that December 9th, uh, Scott had a conversation with Amber, which was the first time that he ever let on that he'd had a previous marriage because before he told her that he'd been single, never divorced, anything like that. But then December 9th, he says, I actually do have an ex-wife and it's just hard because this is the first holiday I'm going to be spending without her on December 9th. 
before Lacey ever goes missing. So he's crying and Amber thinks that his ex-wife must have died from an accident or something because of the emotional response he's having to the fact that she's not going to be with him this holiday. So um, police are like, okay, this is crazy. Do you still have contact with him? And Amber's like, yeah, he calls me pretty much every day. So then the police have Amber start recording her phone calls with Scott. And actually, as the police are there talking to her, um, she gets a call from Scott. And they're like, oh, my gosh, put it on speakerphone. We got to hear this. They start recording the conversation. And on the phone, Scott is clearly talking to her like, he's like, I miss you so much. Uh, Talking to her like he's her girlfriend. He's her boyfriend, which he is. And on the phone, he's talking to her and he's telling her, oh, I'm in Paris right now. I'm in Europe and it's so beautiful. Yeah. And like this is a phone call they played in court. But it's like the lights are so beautiful. I miss you so much. I wish you could be here with me. And in all reality, he definitely was not in Paris. He was in Modesto at Lacey's candlelight vigil while he was calling his girlfriend, telling her that he was in Paris and the lights were beautiful. He's at a basically a memorial for yeah. his wife. And Dummy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Bad so call. the police have um, Amber continue to record all this. And then eventually they realize um, their cover is going to be broken. Scott's going to find out that they have contact with Amber because the National Enquirer says, hey, we found a picture of Amber and Scott together. They actually let the police know like a day before. They're like, we're going to publish this as like the front page of our newspaper. So just get ready. Like we're we're pub- we're going forward with the story. So they're not going to have access to any of that phone call, any of any of those things anymore. And so after the picture comes out in the National Enquirer of Amber Fry and Scott Peterson together, the police actually um went to Lacey's family cuz they wanted to show them the picture first and like yeah. before they found about it, found out about it on in the media, mm-hmm. which yeah. I think was good of them. Yeah. It's a good courtesy. And um they, when they showed the family the picture, Lacey's mom started crying and said, quote, why did he have to kill her? Yeah. yeah. Which is just, I mean, that's tough. That's because a turning point. Yeah. That is a turning point because it's like her whole family, which had backed him from the beginning, said they were always a team. They were together. It was a fairy tale. Like, they, nothing could have been wrong. Or is now seeing that this person they trusted so much has a completely other life that they never knew about and that Lacey probably never knew about. No. So it's pretty crazy. And um, January 24th, like I said, this is uh, she comes forward. Amber gives her official statement in a press conference. And after that, that's when Scott becomes hated, like absolutely hated throughout the entire United States, especially in California. Mm -hmm. So uh, after she comes forward, the police look back on the burglary and they actually find the people who they think did the burglary. Yeah. And the burglars say they broke in the 26th, um, not the 24th. And they gave alibis that cleared them of Lacey's disappearance. So basically for the police, they think the robbers are out as potential right. suspects because they think they've caught the people who did it. Mm-hmm. And they all have alibis for when listen Lacey to the, would be Listen fine. to the robbers. Yeah. They They're listen very to truthful. The robbers. <laughs> Great. Criminals always tell the truth. Criminal, yeah. yeah. We robbed why, the house two trust, days later. Why wouldn't we trust them? <laughs> you know what's weird about that? There, in uh, One of the news reporters w- was interviewed, and he said, so one of the local news, Modesto reporters, he said that he was out front of their house at three in the morning, every morning for the morning news, and there's no way they could have robbed that house without him seeing it across the street no i don't believe those robbers either because we'll talk screw those guys we'll talk about the appeal (laughs) later and how it comes back so they also at this time they clear everyone who they had talked about um people who were on parole for violent crimes they clear them make sure all of them have alibis and all of them do so now it's time for them they're like okay we've we've done the robbers done all these people on parole now it's time to check out scott as a potential suspect so they go to the warehouse where his boat was being um, held and they go to see, like, could his alibi be true? So some things they find which are a little bit strange is that on the boat they find an anchor with no rope. So there's, Suspect. An, there's an anchor in the boat with nothing to connect it to anything. It's just kind of sitting there. Uh, they also find pliers 
with a hair in them, like two hairs pressed together inside the pliers. Uh, And they also find that on his workbench, there's the outlines of like five anchors. They know one of them is in the boat, but four of, of the other anchors are missing and they can't find them anywhere in the warehouse and they're not on the boat. They're just like gone, but they know that he had made them. Uh, So they're kind of like, where could the anchors have potentially been used to weigh down her body is what they're thinking at this time. So they send the hair on the pliers to be tested and they find that it's compliant with Lacey's hair. Like it could be Lacey's hair, but it's not 100% certain that it is her hair, but they definitely think it could be. Like there's a very good chance that it could be. Maybe it's Amber's hair. So, (laughs) you know, like I don't know. I'm not trying to make this like guilty or innocent. It's just like, it's yeah. just crazy. Everything is like, it's all or nothing. This yeah. whole thing is always all or nothing. It's just so like confusing. Yeah, because on that evidence, they start sending out sonar boats and they're they're going into the bay and like scanning for her body, trying to see where she could be. So another thing that they found kind of suspect was that at the end of January, so like a month after Lacey disappeared, Scott had sold her car and he was about to sell her house. And they were like, why? Why is that, my friend? Because we're putting together, like, this case. We're trying to find her. Why aren't you holding out any hope that she's going to come back? Like, why sell her car? Why sell your house if you are, like, it made them think he must be certain that she's not coming back Mm -hmm. if he's willing to sell all this stuff. So they continue to search, but basically they get no leads, no, nothing new on the case for months. So um, April 18th, 2003 is actually when the next big event in the case happens, and that's when they find Lacey Peterson's body. So they confirm that on April on April 18th, actually, they're able to confirm that the body they found on the 13th in the San Francisco Bay uh, was Connor Peterson, her son, and that um, the body they found on April 14th in the same area was Lacey Peterson. So... When they find her, it's really awful and graphic. It's uh, her head was missing. Her forearms were missing. Her legs were missing. So it was really only her torso. There were no organs left in her body because of how long she was in the water. And interestingly, the baby was hardly damaged at all. And there wasn't really evidence of marine activity um, Mm. on the baby's corpse. So Scott... Then they then they say, okay, we have her body. This is enough that we can arrest Scott. Yeah. Now that we have a body, we can arrest him. So when they find Scott, he's actually driving away. Uh, they pull him over for speeding because he's driving away. He has his hair bleached. He has a goatee, camping equipment, snorkeling gear, 15 grand, three phones, and his brother's driver's license in the car with him. So it kind of looks like to the police that he's trying to make a quick escape. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it kind of looks that way to me because there's no reason to carry around 15 grand in cash mm-hmm. unless you're trying to go somewhere. Know. So we'll talk about it in the Dunkin' Room. Yep. Yeah. So people in Modesto are basically flocking to see him get arrested, go to jail. Like there's a huge crowd when they actually bring him into jail because the media coverage on this case has been insane. And especially now that they found a body, like it's just crazy. So people are people are like cheering for him to get put away. This is see, now this is where I have the problem. You can keep going. Yeah. I'm just saying this, that whole deal is what makes me upset about yeah. this case. So April eighteenth, he is uh held without bail for capital murder and double homicide charges. Um, because at that time in California, if you killed a baby while it was in the womb, um, it was still considered first-degree first murder. That is probably going to go away soon because they already took that away in New York and some other states. Now it's not considered first-degree murder, but um, at this time it still was. So April 21st, um, 2003, Peterson is charged with two felony counts of murder, uh, first-degree murder, and Peterson pleads not guilty to these charges. So Scott hires a lawyer who's known for being super media savvy. His name is Mark Garagos. Uh, he's a Los Angeles attorney. He's represented Winona Ryder, Michael Jackson, like all these people in the past. And he's pretty much known for getting important people who are very covered by the media out of trouble. So in that sense, it doesn't yeah. make sense to me why he would have hired him because he was getting all this press. Um, Scott's defense team 
great. They were super diligent, actually, into looking into this case, like even more than the prosecution, I would say. Um, Gary goes publicly spoke out about this case to the media and talked like he would he didn't. That's one of the reasons why I think they hired him is he didn't step away from the press. Yeah. He he yeah. said, OK, let me talk straight to you. Let me tell you all the things that the police did wrong. And he talked about um, one of the things he said to the press was that there was a satanic group in the same neighborhood that had abducted and raped a girl in Lacey's neighborhood before she was kidnapped. And the report also said that uh, the the cult had made the threat that they were going to murder someone on Christmas. So, jeez, he told What's that going on to in the Modesto? media. I don't know. That's crazy to me. <laughs> the airplane district. And then he also said there's another woman named Evelyn Hernandez who had also disappeared when she was eight months pregnant, and she was found in basically the same place that Lacey Peterson was found, and she also had no hands, feet, or head, and um. That was six months before Lacey Peterson was found or kidnapped. So they all. he also said the prosecution's what? case is almost entirely circumstantial. They have no witnesses and no wor- murder weapon and no f- like real forensic evidence. So yeah. he's, he's basically just firing off against the prosecution and against all these charges against his client to the media, which I think was a smart move for their for the defense because they needed to combat like the source of why everyone was starting to hate him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So it's a PR campaign at this point. Yeah, pretty much. So California um, decides that they are going to also pursue the death penalty. It basically is known at this point that they're going to pursue the death penalty against mm-hmm. Scott Peterson. Um, so June 12th, 2003, um, there is basically an order issued that is placing a restriction on who can participate in the trial because um, they said that it was very necessary to restrict like who could be a juror to make sure that Scott Peterson had a fair trial because this case was already getting so much media coverage, especially in Modesto. They didn't want him to be tried by a jury of his peers who had already decided he was guilty. Yeah. Because I agree, no matter who you are, that is definitely not a fair trial. Um, And this was partially because there was crazy stuff. Like there was a billboard over the highway that said, that was said Scott Peterson, man or monster. With like a Yikes. big picture of his face in Modesto. So it was like they couldn't exactly just pick anyone because there's all this stuff out there about how he's definitely guilty and all that stuff. So um, in August of 2003, basically they're like, okay, no cameras, no nothing. Like we need to we need to make sure this is a, a fair trial. And um, so... January 20th, 2004. So it's been it's been a long time. It's been like almost like it's been a year. Yeah. Or, yeah, a year. Um so the trial gets moved to San Mateo County, which is in Redwood City, so it's like 90 miles away, um because they wanted to pick a jury of people who weren't involved in the case. Um and that's impossible. <laughs> in, you know, in California. In in the United States, I feel like the National Enquirer in the name man it's a national thing you yeah. go to any albertson's you see that nonsense yeah it's crazy well if you actually watch any of the interviews with the jurors though it's like the people who got picked were like people who had no tvs or people that like didn't they they actually went through a pretty vigorous um selection process for the jury like there was one guy who um, he when he tells the story, he's like, I worked a graveyard shift uh, where there was no TVs in my workplace and then slept during the day. Yeah. So he was picked to be on the, the trial because he had never like heard of Scott Peterson before. Yeah. But again, it's like once he was on the jury, how much of that information could they prevent from getting to him afterward? You know what I mean? And there's so, also there were also people who lied on the questionnaire to yeah. get into the case. Yeah. That's so so sketchy. So in March all is actually it. when they begin <sighs> sl- all that selection process. It hurts my heart. And then it's everything, this whole thing. This yeah. whole thing hurts my heart. No, it's crazy. It's definitely not a fair trial. I would say that. And then May 27th is when they finally select um, a jury. There are six alternate people to be on the jury if any yeah. of these 12 people get injured or have to pull out for any reason whatsoever. And uh, that is basically where the rest of this absolutely insane trial starts because it's already been crazy. We've got billboards, we've gotten, Dude. we've gotten like anchors and all these theories, satanic cults, like 
craziness. I can feel myself getting sucked into the hype of this. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, mean it I'm, is so crazy. I'm not better than anyone, anybody else at all. I'll never say that. But I felt like, I just feel like, man, I wish I could be someone who, guilty or innocent, steps away from the hype. Yeah. And you're reading this off, and I've watched freaking, how many hours? Eight? I don't know. Eight hours of content on this thing in the last two and a half weeks, and I'm sucked back in, and I'm getting hyped. (laughs) And the fact that there's so much content on this in on hulu on all these streaming services it just shows you man it's still that same thing i'm just people getting pulled into true crime yep dang it (laughs) i hate true crime (laughs) (laughs) this is the wrong podcast for you just kidding i love it but um with that i think that's where we're gonna end part one of the scott peterson case so just what are you guys thoughts so far I'm so confused now. <laughs> the documentary we watched, I mean, I'm questioning my judgments now. So I think that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, there are some weird things. Yeah. But at the same time, it is also like the one I watched probably didn't touch on things that yours touched yeah. on. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think this trial, it gives us a lot of insights into, into who we are. And I hope, I think the win in all of this, in watching the documentaries and everything, I don't think anyone can deny the fact that the way that this was handled was pretty bad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, just the way everything was handled was very, very ill-advised. And also just the fact that it seems a lot of times in the media that I've watched about this and in other, I'm sure the media at the time, it's like, it's so crazy and fantastical and like, oh, catch the villain and stuff that you forget about the actual victim, like Lacey Peterson, who died for this hype to happen. Like it's yeah. kind of and her her son. Like yeah. it's so it really is just so sad that we take some like this tragic event for her family and then mm-hmm. they have to relive it constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Nancy Grace gets to make <laughs> paper. Stacks of paper off of a woman who was a pregnant woman who was murdered. I mean, that's how I feel about the case. Do that's I mean, yeah. Even Mark Garagos, but she wasn't even a. Well, she was a. I think she she was a prosecutor, defense defense attorney, or she was a prosecuting attorney. But she became a TV personality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Because because that paid more, and that was easier. And man, you go on, you go on TV, and you're like. This guy's a scumbag. He cheated on his wife. Yeah. So he's guilty. Oh, wait, yeah. wait, yeah. hold up. And we'll talk about that, folks, more in the next episode when we talk Nancy about Nancy Grace, if you're listening, trial. I got a problem with you. <laughs> Called <laughs> out. <laughs> oh, that was so weird. Okay. But um, I think we should move on to my favorite segment of these episodes. Okay. Happy things. So this is a part of the show where we just say one good thing that happened in your week or something that you're looking forward to. I can go first. I have had a great week and I think my happy thing is that yesterday I was able to technical direct a football game for the first time ever and it was so much fun and then also um, I got to do some audio for it and that was just really amazing and super fun and I can't wait to do it next time and uh, I think I talked about CSBN a little bit a while ago, which is Chapman Sports Broadcast Network, but I just like continue to enjoy it more and more each time I do it. So that's super great. Super it's fun. amazing. Yeah. I last night went to the Five Points Amphitheater with my awesome wife, Kaya, that's who's nice. right next to me. And we saw Morrissey and dude, Morrissey was dope. That's awesome. It was amazing. And uh, we got Del Taco after we sat in the parking lot. Yeah. And ate it. And I, I don't know how I already forgot about that. <laughs> I was like trying to think of my week. <laughs> it was just last night. Uh, well, I'm not going to use that one then. Well, I didn't think of it anyways, but uh, I got a Thai massage Ooh, on Friday. A 90-minute Thai massage. Just made it, it was, weekend? It was just amazing. They use their feet. <laughs> yeah, I was like walked on. Like I was stepped on. Was that like painful? or Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, my shoulders are pretty bruised, but like... <laughs> It's like good pain. Yeah, like tension releasing yes. pain. Okay, that's fair. Worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So I think we're going to end the episode right there. Thank you guys so, so much for listening. If you have the time or you want to, go ahead and leave us a rate on a rate or a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, Share the podcast with your friends. That's really how it gets traction. That's how people hear about it. And uh, if you are able to donate, we are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash horrible things. So you can find us there for extra content and things like that. So without further ado, I just want to let you guys know to remember. Don't listen to KFI and don't let your kids watch Nancy Grace. (laughs) And, uh, you know, don't dye your hair after your wife dies. And most importantly, don't Don't do do horrible horrible things. things.